We're going to take a slight detour from our um, regular series on Galatians since Good Friday is coming up in a few weeks' time. That's good for us to prepare ourselves for that as well. So we are going to read from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 22, the verses 1 through 53. Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that is Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, 
But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, when he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and a sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So far. And our text this morning is verse 51. Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in a few more weeks it will be Good Friday. We will remember the crucifixion and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text, our passage this morning narrates some of the events that led up to that day. One of the things that you realize when you begin to read the Gospels carefully is that each Gospel has its own emphasis Each gospel is selective in the details that it includes and how it presents them. Each gospel writer wants to give a slightly different angle on what happened. And when you put all of these different perspectives together, you get a three-dimensional picture. 
In this case, all four of the Gospels mention that one of the disciples of Jesus tried to defend his master. He drew a sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from John that the disciple was Peter and the servant's name was Melchus. Melchus would likely have been a slave of the high priest. The same Greek word gets used whether you refer to a servant or to a slave. There was no real significant difference. Likely he was a slave. But he was a slave who had a lot of responsibility. In this case, he was the high priest's representative, and so he was in charge of this mob, probably. So he would have have been at the front of the mob. Now, why would Peter cut off his ear? Seems like a strange thing to cut off. Well, he was probably aiming for his head, trying to cleave his head in the middle, and Melchus ducked out of the way, and uh, the sword missed his head but took off his ear instead. Luke includes most of these details as well, but he also includes one detail that you don't find in any other gospel. That is the detail of the ear of this servant or slave of the high priest being healed. All four gospels mention that the ear was cut off, but only Luke mentions that Jesus miraculously healed the man again. Now, all scripture is inspired by God, and so every detail is significant. Every word is significant. And so we have this detail here about Jesus healing this man's ear. Why would that be there? That detail has to be there for a reason, don't you think? Sometimes looking at that sort of detail can open the gospel for you in a new and surprising way. And that's our goal today as well. We're going to spend some time reflecting on this miracle that our Lord Jesus performed, his last miracle before being arrested. So this morning I may summarize the gospel for you under the heading, Do Not Ignore the Last Miracle of Jesus. We will see that it shows that he is the Savior and it shows that he is the judge. So as we begin to study this passage together, maybe we should begin by asking ourselves the question, why did Peter want to fight in the first place? After all, had Jesus not taught him to love his enemies? Well, Jesus did, but in verse 36 of our reading, Jesus had also told our disciples that, or told the disciples that hard times were coming. Look at verse 36, he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Isn't he telling them to arm themselves? And if he's going to tell them to arm themselves, is he not also giving them permission to defend themselves? Well, that's what the disciples thought. But is that actually what Jesus was telling them? If you don't listen carefully, you might get the impression that he was saying something like, well, yeah, you have depended on God's providence the first time that I sent you out. But now things are going to be different. You're going to have to stand on your own two feet. You'll have to look out for yourselves instead. God will not look after you anymore. Now, clearly that cannot be what he meant and it wasn't. His point was not that they couldn't depend on God anymore. His point is that the first time he sent them out, they could depend on the goodwill of the people to help them out. They went on this journey completely unprepared, and the people they encountered were willing to look after them. But now Jesus will be numbered with the transgressors. 
Jesus is going to be treated like a criminal. Jesus will be rejected. And his disciples will be rejected as well. There will be hard times in store for them. They will be spending a lot of time on the road going from one place to another. The standard equipment while traveling was a money bag, provisions, and a sword in case you ran into trouble. Come prepared for trouble, he's saying. People will know that you belong with me, and since I was numbered with the transgressors, you will be as well. That's his point. The disciples missed that point, of course. They heard the bit about the swords, and they said, Excellent! Jesus wants us to be armed. Well, be prepared is our motto. Here's two swords already. Look, Lord. And Jesus puts an abrupt end to this conversation. He essentially says in verse 38 of of the reading, that's enough. He says to them, it is enough. And it's hard to tell whether whether he means this ironically, if he's amused with them maybe, or somewhat irritated, or maybe a little bit of all of that. But uh, those words, it is enough, can definitely be understood in more than one way. So the fact that the conversation ended the way it did shows us that the point is not resistance. There is definitely a time for Christians to fight. The government bears a sword to prevent murder, as the Catechism also teaches us. So if you're a police officer, if you're in the military, if your country is legitimately engaged in war with another, there will be times that you will need to use the sword, so to speak. But you do that on behalf of your country. And there may also be times in life when violent self-defense is necessary. You men, you're the head of your household. And those of you that are married have been entrusted with a wife. God has entrusted you with this woman who is your wife. And that means you serve and protect her. And protecting her means also protecting her from harm and from danger. When she's in danger, you protect her. If that means you need to use force to protect her, then that is your God-given responsibility to do. Not because you hate your enemy, but because you love your wife. Isn't that what you committed to do in the form for marriage? It says you are to guide, protect, and comfort your wife. Now, not everything requires a forceful response, but there may be situations in life where violence is necessary. But we should not misunderstand what Jesus is saying. The disciples misunderstood him to say that from now on they would have to meet force with force as they carried out their ministry. He was not saying that. But he's also not saying that Christians may never, under any circumstances, engage in the use of force. However, our default setting should be peace-loving. Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone. Everyone. So the default setting for a Christian should always be pacifism. We should hate war. We should hate violence. Psalmist says in Psalm 120, I am for peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. His kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't operate according to the rules of this world. So we should hate violence. One question near the heart of this passage is, what then is the nature of the kingdom of heaven? How is it spread? Jesus said, not by violence. That's clear from his response to Peter's actions. He does not want his opponents to to be able to accuse him of being a lawbreaker. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is about. 
The kingdom of heaven is the reign of God over the hearts and the lives of men. That is only ever possible when their sins have been forgiven. And forgiveness is only possible because Christ has paid for those sins. Christ is a Savior. Christ is on his way to the cross to willingly submit himself to the violence of men, even though he has done no wrong. Maybe your Bible has a heading above this passage that says betrayal and arrest of Jesus. That's fine as long as it doesn't give you the impression that Jesus was passive and just let these things happen to him. He was in total control of the situation. You can tell by the way that is being described. In fact, the section that we read together doesn't even tell us that, that Jesus was arrested. That doesn't get mentioned until the next se- section, and then it gets mentioned in passing. And it's important because this is conveying to us the idea that Jesus is in control of the situation. He's about to be arrested, but he's still in control. He rebukes Peter. He prevents further violence from happening. He heals the ear of Malchus. And that shows that when he's going to be arrested, when he's going to be crucified, he will do so willingly. He's submitting to the will of the Father. And in this particular case, that means submitting to the violence that will be done to him. He's doing that because he is the Savior. From that perspective, you can see how wrong it was of Peter to respond with violence in this situation. In fact, by doing so, he is damaging the gospel. He is damaging the gospel. He is misrepresenting the kingdom of heaven to the people who have come to arrest Jesus. He has also harmed the slave of the high priest. All these things are sinful. In fact, Peter's actions show that he needs the gospel now more than ever before. He needs the gospel just as much as the man he has harmed. We need the gospel just as much as he did as well. Think about the last time you responded to conflict in a way that was sinful. Did your response show that Christ is your Savior? Was your response shaped by the will of God? Was it shaped by the gentleness of the one who submitted to violence for the sake of bringing us the gospel? Or did you have to win at all costs? Was your response shaped by the will of God, or did you impose your will forcefully on someone else in that situation? You know, we can say whatever we want, but in the end, what people really believe about themselves, about God, and about the kingdom of heaven shows in the way that they respond to conflict. We cannot ignore the last miracle of Jesus, and we cannot ignore the gospel that comes through this miracle as well. The miracle is not just that Jesus healed Malchus's ear, but also that his response was so different from Peter's. He responded by submitting to the will of his father, and in this case, that meant submitting to the violence that was done to him. He did that to pay for the sins of his people. Also for the sins of Peter and his foolish behavior in this situation. By healing Malchus's ear, Jesus undoes the damage that Peter's sin has caused. To understand how deep that runs, we should take a step backwards and talk about slavery for a moment. After all, Malchus was the slave of the high priest. Being a slave was hard. Now, we should not confuse Greco-Roman slavery with the 
um, sorts of things that happened during the American slave trade in the 16th and 17th century. A well-educated slave in Greco-Roman days had a good life. Could have a good life. Didn't always have a good life, but could have a good life. They had um, access to many opportunities. They had security in many ways at a time when a lot of people didn't. But the thing about being a slave is that you have no freedom. To be a slave means that your freedom is taken away from you. In biblical times, there were two ways for that to happen. One of them was that your freedom would be taken away through violence because you were captured in battle and sold as a slave. The other way to become a slave was through poverty, that you had to sell yourself into slavery. But slavery was not part of God's plan for human beings. Under Old Testament law, it was possible for a Jew to sell himself into slavery in order to overcome poverty or perhaps even to pay off a debt. But every 50 years, it was a year of jubilee. That meant at least once in his or her lifetime, the slave could taste freedom again. You can read about that in Leviticus 25, the verses 39 through 43. The year of jubilee was an opportunity for ordinary relationships to be restored again. And so what that teaches us is that God was concerned about the well-being even of slaves. The year of Jubilee was meant as a way of showing the gospel even to slaves. They too could and should know that God was the God who restores, who redeems, and who heals. People had to realize that slaves were human beings too, people who had value in the eyes of God. Now we don't practice slavery anymore, at least not in the same way. But if you run a business, how do you view your employees? Do you see them as people who are viable in the eyes of God? Do you and your behavior demonstrate the gospel to them? What about the goods that we buy? Is the clothing that we buy, for example, made under conditions that promote virtual slavery? Are we always worried about the bottom line? Is that the only thing that we're interested in? Do we think about that when we buy a $4 t-shirt at Kmart? Or do we ensure that the things that we buy are, are to the degree that we can ethically sourced? That we, don't, that we don't knowingly buy from companies that promote modern day slavery? See, our text shows that the comfort and condition of slaves matter to God. You read a text this morning and maybe you thought, well, Malchus was pretty lucky. He only lost an ear. He could have been dead. An ear is not too bad. But that's actually a secular way of looking at the matter. That's how Caiaphas would have looked at it. He would have been angry because his property, his slave, has been damaged. But he would likely not have been overly concerned about Malchus the man. Yeah, Jesus shows that the comfort and condition of slaves matters to God. There are no small wounds to him. There are no small people. Even as he's about to be arrested, he shows that he's more concerned about a slave than he is about himself in that moment. So he shows himself to be the true Savior. Jesus is showing himself to be the true Savior here. He's powerful enough to protect himself. But here his power is working towards a purpose. Jesus wants this slave to see the gospel. Malchus certainly did not learn the gospel from Caiaphas. 
It's hard to tell whether Caiaphas would have kept the year of Jubilee or not. And even if, we, even if he had, the year of Jubilee only applied to Israelites. Melchus may not have been an Israelite, given his name. So it may not have made a difference. But regardless of all of that, when Caiaphas, the high priest, sent a slave to capture Jesus Christ, the true high priest, the gospel was obscured. Jesus wanted the slave to see the gospel. He wanted the slave to see that God shows undeserved favor to sinners. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is that God shows undeserved favor to sinners. Jesus said that the one who sins is a slave to sin. By nature, all of us are slaves. By nature. In Christ, God shows undeserved mercy to people like us who by nature are slaves to sin. Jesus is the true high priest who himself became a servant, even a slave. He humbled himself unto, unto death. Philippians 2 says that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is on the way to that cross. Christ is, is on his way to hell. And he knows it. And yet by performing this miracle of healing, he shows the gospel to a slave of all people. He's revealing himself as the one who heals not just our relationships, not just our bodies, but our relationship with God. That's why we should not ignore the last miracle of Jesus ourselves. What's the purpose of this miracle? The purpose in this is to focus attention on the word, the same word that Jesus has been preaching all along. That's the purpose of this miracle. You know, miracles are, um, it's interesting to think about them. In the Belgian Confession class in two weeks' time, we um, will be reading some um, of the apocryphal and pseudepigraphal writings, writings from, uh, that are extra-biblical writings about Jesus and various biblical figures. If you took the Belgian Confession class recently and you're sitting here this morning, you might still remember some of that. A lot of this stuff is legendary. It's, it's things that people made up. And often you can tell by the types of miracles that purportedly um, Jesus or the apostles did in these stories. The miracles that are described in these writings serve no purpose. They're, um, they're just meant to amaze you. They're like explosions in an action movie, meant to draw your attention, to, to look at things. But this miracle that Jesus did, this miracle points us to the gospel. It shows us that life is meant to be lived in a peaceful relationship with God and man, that our sins have damaged that, that Christ has come to restore that in every possible way, and that he alone can restore that. No one else could have done what he did here. Not, because, not just because of the miracle itself, but because of the circumstances. That's how Christ is showing the gospel. So we cannot ignore the last miracle of Jesus. It shows that he is Savior. It also shows that he is the judge.
In performing this miracle on his way to the cross, Jesus is showing that he is the Savior, but he's also showing that he is the judge. This miracle is a judgment, make no mistake. This miracle is a judgment over Caiaphas. Caiaphas has obscured the gospel through his actions. He has not lived up to his responsibilities as a priest. He has rejected the Messiah. He has obscured the gospel for others, for example, by sending Malchus in here to to arrest Jesus, to capture the Messiah. So in this last miracle, Jesus is clearly showing the gospel that Caiaphas has rejected and implicitly condemning Caiaphas through that as well. Within 24 hours, Jesus will be dead. The curtain in the temple will be torn in two, the curtain dividing the holy place from the most holy place. That is a visual indication that the temple and its sacrifices will no longer be needed. And it also means that Caiaphas has become irrelevant. His services as high priest will no longer be needed. But he's not honorably dismissed. Caiaphas is being deposed. He is deposed because he did not live up to his responsibilities as high priest over the nation. Caiaphas was supposed to embody what the gospel was meant to look like. And through his behavior, he did the exact opposite. So this miracle of Jesus shows that he is the judge because in doing this, he did what Caiaphas was supposed to do but didn't do, and thereby he judged him. He condemned him for his shortcomings. And even the nation of Israel is deposed. They are no longer God's exclusive people. They have been part of the structure of suppressing the truth for too long. The last miracle of Jesus shows them In one blinding moment, what grace looks like, what the gospel looks like, and yet these very people will be baying for his blood less than 24 hours later, calling for his crucifixion. In Matthew 27, Pilate, about to hand him over, washes his hands before the crowd, and he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the people say, his blood be on us and on our children. And that's exactly what happened 40 years later when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. Peter thought that he could help the kingdom of God by using his sword. Jesus rebuked him because this is not how the kingdom of God is spread. But there will be a time when there will be conquest with the sword. Revelation 19 describes Christ riding out for war and it says that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus doesn't need Peter's sword. There will be a time when there will be worldwide peace because there has been a worldwide conquest. How many of us really dream about that kind of peace? We want peace. Don't we? Everyone wants peace, but only for selfish reasons. We want peace in our own lives and in our families and in our country. We want no hassle. That's what we really want to know about. But the peace that Christ died for is far greater than that. The peace that Christ died for is the undisguised reign of God. It is nothing less than God's gracious rule over this world and it will culminate in time 
regardless of our personal or political circumstances or preferences. You see, true peace, as far as the Bible is concerned, is when all is submitted to God. Ultimate peace is when the opposition is permanently silenced. Ultimate peace is the undisputed reign of God, and it will come to pass whether we cooperate with it or not. The day is coming when at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. That's why you cannot ignore the last miracle of Jesus. There is still time to repent now. But a time is coming when the preaching of the gospel will end. There's a time when the miracle of God's grace will be withdrawn. A day is coming of worldwide judgment, and it's coming soon. Malchus experienced some of God's grace in the last miracle of Jesus. He could experience what God is really like. God, a God who is gracious and kind and loving. But did Malchus ever respond to that? Did Malchus ever repent himself? He experienced the gospel. But did he respond to it? Who will be his true master after this? Caiaphas or Christ? That's a question that we're left with this morning. Who's our master, our true master? Who do we serve? And the things that we do, do they conceal the gospel or do they reveal it? We cannot ignore that question. We cannot put it off. We cannot ignore the last miracle of Jesus because it calls us to believe. Our response to this call has eternal consequences. But it also brings us hope because this miracle shows us God's immeasurable love, His immeasurable desire to set all things straight. And He will one day. He proved it in the last miracle before His death. And He will continue to prove it in the miracle of our life. Amen.